Welcome to another exciting episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about life as a doctor. I'm your host, Lily, and I'm here to interview amazing, insightful guests about their specialties in medicine. But why, do you ask? Why would someone want to do this? Well, it's so you can learn about different specialties, so you have a better idea of what you want to do with your life. Or it's for those of you who are just curious about what different areas of medicine involve. It's even for you voyeuristic non-medical folk who are just interested in healthcare jobs. And if that's you, then that's really awesome. The beauty of the podcast is that you can learn all of this without even having to leave your bedroom, your commute, or your tragic secluded study space in the library, wherever you're listening to this from. Maybe it's even a wild party, in which case I hope my voice really goes well with heavy trance music. But that said, no wildly successful podcast is complete without its adoring fans, so I'd like to mention a few very special people, like special in a, in a good way, you know. So firstly, yet again, a shout out to Sarah, this time it's a surprise, but this episode on respiratory medicine is dedicated to you. I'd also like to thank those excellent people who support this show by listening to it through Bluetooth in their car and maybe even referring it on to their non-medical partners so you know who you are, <clears throat> Emily. And finally, thank you to all the listeners for being supportive episode after episode. And with all of that said, let's start on this episode. I have with me today a savior of the respiratory system, a doctor of the lungs, an enemy of sleep apnea, and a nemesis of cystic fibrosis, Dr. Lucy. So welcome on the show, Dr. Lucy. Thanks, Lily. Thanks for having me. It's excellent to have you on the show. And for us to begin, let's just talk about what respiratory medicine is. What sort of diseases does it involve? Okay, so I'm a respiratory physician, so I don't cut much out of the lungs. Uh, I'm a physician and I heal with listening and talking and prescribing medication. But the sorts of things that can go with wrong with lungs are, are really pretty general. I guess I would put them into uh, problems with uh, so anatomically based problems, so problems with the airways, the tubes, problems with the spongy lung, problems with the blood vessels, problems with the cling wrap that goes around the lungs, so we call that the pleura, problems with the rib cage and the chest, and I guess problems with the mechanics of coordinating all of that. Yeah, and it's because the lungs are so integral to life because you don't need a lot of things. People say you need money and that's arguable, but you definitely need air. Yeah, but if you can't breathe, not much else matters, Lily. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how did you choose to go into lung medicine? Well, it's one of those um, very common but kind of a bit corny stories. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I was already a doctor. I was a junior doctor here in this hospital. Um, and then um, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be a physician rather than a surgeon. Um, uh, although I was quite keen on a psychiatrist at the time. But anyway, that's another story. But I did think I wanted to become a physician. The actual part of the body that was dysfunctional or going wrong wasn't really that um, important to me uh, and I was very tempted by um, training in oncology. Um, I was actually really torn between being an oncologist, a cancer doctor and becoming an, an infection doctor, an infectious diseases special specialist and those were my two real interests but um, uh, 
And so how did I choose respiratory medicine? Well, it was one of those serendipitous meetings with, an, with a couple of individuals, one who I really admired and wanted to grow up to be like, and one who said, to, who was in a very, a very senior position in the hospital at the time, who said, why don't you do respiratory? Come and do respiratory with me. You can do cancer and infections, and I'll give you the world. And so, you know, it was a combination of somebody that I really admired and wanted to um, emulate, wanted somebody I wanted to be like, um, to grow up to be like and somebody who um, offered me an opportunity um, and respiratory medicine did seem to offer me infection and and cancer and lots of other things as well and it offered me something that that I've come to realize is incredibly important in in my work for my own self-gratification and that's long-term relationships with patients um, uh, every smattered with um, a few um, episodic you know care of the young patient who has something wrong and gets better completely and I never see again but actually they're relatively uncommon and so I get to have really long relationships with wonderful people um, who become very important to me. Yeah, now speaking of role models and inspiring people maybe there'll be a couple more <laughs> respiratory <laughs> medicine uh, okay. fans after this but you mentioned that long-term relationships are a part of the work here what do you think is the benefit of those sorts of things? Look look Medicine, um, and especially public hospital medicine, is there are lots of bits that are really gruelling and really hard, and it's a really long life as a professional, as a doctor. Um, so you've got to think about what things will float your boat, what things will carry you through that life. And, and it does sound corny, but the concept of being able to do something to help somebody, um, and not just once, but over a long period of time, is very gratifying and makes me feel good about what I do. Um, and, and it gets you through the really hard times, like when things go wrong or when people die, despite you, not because of you necessarily. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not, those are very painful and difficult things but the relationships that you have with those patients are very special and, um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're a real um, investment in my um, remaining committed to this work, I think. Yeah, so I suppose that seeing the long-term relationships, seeing the patient progress, that's a way of uh, observing what you've done and, and seeing what impact you have. For example, if someone is trying to work on diet and exercise, as is all the rage now, then the way to monitor your progress might be through monitoring the number on the scale, something like that. So I suppose long-term relationships are a way of gauging that you've uh, done something um, for the patient as opposed to the very acute circumstance where you might treat the patient but never get any follow-up. Yeah, I look, I, I, I did, as a junior doctor, I did my time in emergency and um, uh, various terms like that, nights and all of that kind of stuff. And sure, there's an adrenaline rush for the um, uh, from working in those kind of conditions and there are very sudden things that happen and it's very exciting, quite terrifying a lot of the time, but you never get that feedback or, or, or that emotional, yeah, you never get the chance to, to have a longer term relationship with a patient and to see the longer term impact of either the disease or the management um, or just their lives. You don't become part of their lives and I know that that's a really important driver for me in keeping me going with my work. Yeah, so what I find very interesting about your rationale behind your specialty is that it's rather general. It speaks to your values as opposed to, I must study the lungs or I must study the kidneys or some particular yeah. part of the body. Yep. And so your values appear to be more about long-term relationships, um, helping people, the nature of the work and sort of falling into it because you had good people guide you along the way. So hypothetically, let's say that 
people randomly evolved to not have lungs anymore and they had this superhuman pair of balloons powered by nanoparticles or something. So there are no more lungs, your job is obsolete. What do you think you would do? Would you move on to a different organ system and be just as happy or would that be it? Look, I'm trained as a physician. I'm FRACP. I'm actually not trained to be only allowed to look after lungs and if you, and, uh, you've just got to look at you know, today's clinic, which is, um, I'll just tell you listeners, is in a pile in front of us on the, clin on the, um, the files are on a pile um, in front of me. Um, no one of those patients has only lung problems. And much of today's clinic has been about talking about or addressing the needs of other parts of their lives and their bodies and their souls, <laughs> um, or their, you know, <laughs> their, their brains and hearts and minds, and all their multiple medications, sometimes their relationships with their friends and family and their ability to work. So there is more than just lungs going on in every patient, and more than just lung pathology or pulmonary pathology going on in every one of my patients, from everybody, from the young otherwise fit, slyly smoking asthmatic, <laughs> through to somebody with severe bronchiectasis and pulmonary hypertension and uh, pseudomonas colonization and depression and anxiety and ischemic heart disease and glucose intolerance, prediabetes and a new um, breast cancer, you know? So everything from, from one extreme to the other. So look, I think respiratory medicine is um, beautifully placed to be subspecializable and general medicine um, are very applicable to a wide range of patients of all sorts of ages um, uh, with all sorts of problems and it's allowed me to develop as I've gone along I have developed some special interest in some sort of niche areas of respiratory medicine but my day-to-day -day practice is still very much general and involves a lot of general medicine. Yeah, and that's part of the versatility of going through the physician's training as opposed to some of the other colleges. So uh, for one thing, surgery is ruled out, so you won't have to go down there. But other than that, it's quite open that you could go into various organ systems. And like you said, it is rather general. So people don't have to decide as soon as they enter medical school, as soon as they finish medical school, you can really do the exams, take your time and keep Absolutely. your options open. And I think, um, I think there's a lot to be said for just stopping from time to time and lifting your eyes from the books and and uh, looking around at the people that you're working with and the patients that you're caring for and look for perhaps not inspiration, well maybe inspiration, um, particularly from the sorts of colleagues you might want to have um, and the way that you might like to do your work. Um, and there's all sorts of cues and clues that you can get from your colleagues about how you might want to practice your craft. Um, and I and uh, you know there's not a there's not a day goes by that I'm not really proud that I'm a respiratory physician. I love my craft group and they're great people, and I think we do really you know I'm really lucky to have this job. Now we've talked about having really great colleagues around you and mentors, and you say that you're lucky. But one school of thought is that there isn't all that much luck in the world. Luck is, you know, to a large extent, self-made. Yep. So do you have any tips on finding the right people to work with or identifying um, who's going to bring the best out of you and, and get you to contribute more? That's a really interesting question, Lily. Um, I came to this hospital as, a, as an intern and uh, it wasn't random allocation. Um, you know, there is some choice in where you hope to go be placed as a junior doctor. And I certainly sought out um, a the options where I thought I might fit best 
And at the time, and this is a long time ago, um, I was looking for a place that had a great track record in how it treated its JMOs. Not about training schemes and not about physicians' exams and because I didn't know what I wanted to be yet. I just knew that I wanted to be a doctor, which was like the next horizon. And so I chose this hospital as a place that had already a great track record of happy and well-supported JMOs. And so once you're in that pool, then you can go about being a happy JMO and then you can start looking for the next the next stage. So I would think, so I think um, if you're choosing the place where you work, don't look only for exam success rates or, um, um, but I'd be looking for other markers of a happy, contented set of colleagues, like a stable workforce, people who've trained in a hospital and then go back and work in a hospital um, as specialists, people who um, actively have sought out that place of work. And I look for places that um, recognise and reward diversity in their, in their workplace, and that's certainly something I did. Um, and then go about making yourself happy, you know, make it a happy place. Do what you can to immerse yourself in the culture of the place where you're training and working, and then, and then you become part of that culture, and then you can set the tone. Now, some hospitals are known for particular things. A hospital where you're at is rather a general one, is quite well-rounded. Do people ever have to worry about, oh, I have to go to this particular hospital, otherwise my dreams of being in this particular specialty will be ruined and I'll have to be something else forever? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think um, getting good early grounding and happy grounding in in all aspects. So your first couple of years of of training as a junior doctor are, are important only in, fa- in as much as you are happy at work and you feel well supported at work and there are enough of you around to, um, you know, to be a gang. Um, and that's all that matters because the choice is about which avenue you might follow or which road you might follow. Th- those paths are not, they're not set in stone and there's no one-way streets and there's no, no U-turns. You know, there's, all of these things are flexible um, and I think yeah having a good grounding and a good happy early few years is more much more important than ending up at the hospital that puts out the top urology red, uh, surgeons every year or you know the place that puts out the top um, cardiology candidates yeah, because we can never predict where our lives no, will go. No. I mean, yesterday I was eating quinoa, and as a child I would not have known that that existed. I would not know what this was or imagine myself eating that. But look, you know, now I'm this yeah. superfood person. <laughs> but another thing you mentioned was the, uh, being happy and creating a happy life for yourself. Are there any tips on how to do that? Uh, I'm not... That, well, have I got any tips? Um, Work-life balance is a great euphemism and it's one we throw around all the time, but it's incredibly important to have something else and someone else in your life um, to, to enjoy and indulge in um, that's separate to your work. And um, I guess one of the things that, although I walked in today and said, uh, you know, I am totally blonde and totally chaotic and I feel like my life is always like this, I do have three children, I am still married to my first husband and um, we've been married 25 years and I think those are really important tips, you know, I think I don't, um, my husband builds boats and takes fabulous photos and has all these hobbies and he says my, I don't have any hobbies, 
but I do have a PhD and a research portfolio and I have got these children and I am I have gone back to playing the piano and I'm doing some watercolor classes so you know I actually and I do love my garden so having other things outside of work is really important but having other people outside of work is the most important and and prioritizing them over everything else is actually the most important thing in, in the whole wide world. I do have some contention with the claim that you don't have any hobbies because as you've told me you've got an excellent <laughs> taste in music. <laughs> yeah I'm not sure that the um, your listeners are really ready for my um, pub rock um, of the 80s um, uh, stories but perhaps another podcast we can talk about celebrity passions from 1985. <laughs> All right. So what this teaches us is to have things outside medicine, try and be a well-rounded person. It's good for you and I'm sure it's it's probably good to relate to patients as well should you ever have one who walks in and really quite likes midnight oil. That's something to bond over. <laughs> There's only three of them still alive. <laughs> well, I'm um, going back to the clinical side of things. So we've talked a bit about work-life balance. Some say that's a myth, some say that's a good thing. but. Um, speaking of that, what are the hours like as a respiratory physician? Okay, so look, I've got a part-time staff specialist job and and that has meant as my children, when my children were very tiny, um, I didn't have to go to work every day and certainly I did a lot of Play-Doh and Play School and, kin, you know, and, and uh, tuck shop duty yeah. and reading at school. And that was really important. Um, my kids are bigger now, um, and funnily enough, now my parents are aging, and I still need those that time. It doesn't mean you're not working full time, and I think the public health system gets enormous value out of part-time employees, because there's no such thing as being unavailable, and there's always work that's done out of hours. But it does give me the flexibility to be available for my family. If they, if they need it and I think the public hospital sector and private medicine does lend itself to part-time work and that's an extraordinary privilege that we have and and it's for men and for women you know not just not just maternity leave but for fathers with young children it's important to be able to be not working full-time if they should choose it also lends itself to the um, opportunity to have a combination of different workplaces so to work and, and I do work um, in, in a couple of different hospitals and I also do some private work that is expanding a little bit as my kids get a bit older um, so you can think about there are various options of how you work and where you work that are op uh, open to us as, as medicos that that probably aren't open to our friends and colleagues in the law or in banking or finance or teaching in all sorts of other environments. Lots more part-time opportunities and um, we're there to be taken advantage of I think. Doesn't mean you don't work hard but there are opportunities for not working um, full-time. Okay and now you say there are opportunities, are they things that people can just choose or are they quite competitive and it's still a luck of the draw as to whether you get a place like that? Uh, so um, when it comes to senior appoint, senior um, staff specialist or to senior staff appointments to becoming a specialist, um, of course you've already done all your training and training part-time is a little bit harder, not impossible, a little bit harder. Um, by the time you're making the decisions about where you look, what sort of job you want to do as a specialist, um, uh, you can, there is some choice in that you can there are jobs that are advertised as part-time and what you might 
have to compromise on is where that job is. So there might be a staff specialist job at one hospital that is part-time and another staff specialist position at another hospital that's full-time. Well, you can't just say, well, I, I want this, but I only want it part-time. So there is a little bit of choice and a little bit of um, competition. You've still got to apply and be appointed and all of those sorts of things. But there are opportunities. So if, if part-time work is what you want, then you just got to look around and be prepared to go somewhere slightly different, be a little bit flexible. But nobody would be, in this day and age, nobody, there's no guarantees of a, def, of a job in one particular spot forever anyway. So um, uh, we're, we're always prepared to look around, I think. And what about when you're training? What are the hours like? Uh, for example, is it one of those specialties where you're constantly on call, constantly stressed, or is it more like office hours? Look, it's um, it's different in different places, but I think, um, and, and it's a long time since I've been a registrar and since I've been training. It is, it is not the same as when I was training, which is 25 years ago. So, what I'd say is I watch my registrars and my um, my yeah my registrars work very hard, particularly in the winter. Respiratory medicine is it things go wrong with lungs at any time of the year, but infections, particularly influenza, and the consequence of in respiratory infections on people who've already got chronic illness, um, is particularly bad in the winter time, and it can be incredibly busy and you can stay late every single night. Having said that, um, uh, I think we're pretty good as a group at recognising that hospitals are staffed out of hours and that um, there are ways that you can get what you need to get done and get home and that getting home is really important. With And so th there are times when being a respiratory registrar is really hard work. You know, Penrith, emergency in in July and August it's like World War three but um, there are times when it's quieter and and it's certainly not um, the expectation that you'd be um, working um, unrealistic hours most of the time and I get home you know in time to cook dinner for those kids you know every night so great yeah now, you mentioned a couple of challenging things there, for example, the seasonality aspect that, you know, you could be in a division where it's quite overloaded at certain times of the year. Is there anything else that's very challenging about the specialty that perhaps people should be aware of before they dive into it? Um, there are very few people very few doctors who don't have the capacity to be great to be good respiratory physicians. So um, uh, the, there's a very small number of people who have their own health issues that mean that catching infections is detrimental to their health. And I guess they would know who they are and respiratory medicine's probably not for them. It's not for the faint-hearted in that um, um, public hospital respiratory medicine means dealing with death and dying and slowly, not fast. So people with um, chronic respiratory disease do die and they die over a long period of time and it's um, uh, 
and so palliation, palliative medicine becomes a very much a core part of our, of our work. People with COPD, as they get sicker and sicker, um, they die um, and they often die in hospital. So you've got to be ready for that. You've got to be prepared to be able to manage that. But with practice, we, we get used to that. Um, people with lung disease get lung cancers and patients with lung cancers um, have complicated illness paths and um, we're very much at the forefront of helping to manage that. Um, there are opportunities if you're a proceduralist by, you know, um, if you've got procedural intent. And so we've got lots and lots of procedures that we do on a regular basis. We put tubes into people and we look into lungs and we take biopsies from lungs and we stop bleeding by going into lungs. And so we can do some stuff. We've got tools, we've got toys, and we do procedures. And some people are really attracted to that. If you're not attracted to that, there's still an incredible breadth of um, respiratory medicine that um, you can make a real contribution to. So, lots of public health, lots of um, infection and infection control at a global level. Um, uh, you know, smoking cessation and the consequences of tobacco control, really important parts of, there's advocacy, equity and of access issues for Indigenous Australians, for Australians with less in, with lower income than others, with um, mental health issues. There's lots of advocacy stuff. There's lots of acute medicine. There's lots of chronic outpatient medicine. There's um, there's there's the oncology. There's the infections. There's the weird and wonderful, rare and vascular diseases. And there are fabulous opportunities for research, and overlaps with uh, all our fabulous colleagues in. Um, uh, in, in another, you know, in a division of medicine. So um, lots of collaborative stuff with aged care, with um, intensive care, with immunology, with haematology, with gastroenterology. In fact, I can't think of a part of the division of medicine that we don't have lots um, to do with and lots of overlap with. And that's a really important thing. I think it, that comes back to my early stuff about working in a happy environment that I feel very lucky but very connected to my colleagues in a hospital setting. And I am absolutely sure that hospitals is where I need to work and that I personally would not love working in private practice only with only my secretaries and the patients. I love, I'm like an ant in an, ant, in an ant's nest. I love hospitals and the whole support network of pub, of hospitals and as it turns out I love public hospitals because that's where I work. <laughs> good. It's good that what you want is aligned with what you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No that sounds really excellent. You've painted a really good picture of um, the path that you've molded for yourself and all the really versatile things that you can do in respiratory because although it does sound like lung medicine you interact with a lot of other different areas of medicine and it's so much more than just lungs. I do have to say it's it's always a personal challenge when someone says I can't think of a, of something it always makes you want to think of something. I was about to say homeopathy but I thought mm, I don't know if that's an area of medicine. <laughs> I don't think um, I, I don't think it's part of the division of medicine at, at my hospital currently. No. <laughs> But this does lead me into my next question, which is um, across all medicine, lifestyle measures are very important for patients, but perhaps more so in some specialties like cardiology, renal medicine, respiratory, because um, diet and exercise and smoking or anti-smoking are quite big things. Now, it is quite overlooked that there is one positive of smoking, which is that it's protective against old age because people die faster. But other than that, it's relatively evidence-based now, quite general common knowledge that smoking is probably not a very good thing. 
That said, it's not a belief held by everyone, so you're certain to get some patients who will be skeptical of the evidence you present or have a different view for things like smoking and maybe even vaccinations. So how would you deal with patients who maybe err on the side of not so evidence-based things and you, you really want to do the best for them but you you find that you hit a roadblock? So I've got, an, I've got an intellectual approach to that and I've got a pragmatic approach to that. My intellectual approach is based on um, the fact that it's, we don't live in a totalitarian society and it's every patient's right to take on board advice and process it as best they, as they wish to and it's not my job to make them do anything. I guess that's the intellectual approach. My, my pragmatic approach is that actually it doesn't happen very often that I, I actually don't come up against enormous resistance uh, very often. If I think about smoking, very, very, very few of my patients are smokers, ongoing smokers by choice, only a very small number. And most would rather be non-smokers, would rather be ex-smokers. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to achieve and I consider it as part of that long the, the, you know, that long-term relationship that I was talking about with patients. Helping them to become um, sustained ex-smokers is, um, is one of the commitments that I give them, that I'll talk about it every time we see each other, that I won't give up on them and that, um, and that we'll try, we'll keep trying to be, make them ex-smokers. And in fact, um, as I said, I, there are hardly any patients who I see who don't want to become ex-smokers, but who have difficulty quitting for all sorts of reasons. Some of them physiological and some of them psychological. And that's life. So um, so how do I, tr so let me think about another, op another uh, perhaps being in tertiary ivory tower public hospital care, I'm not coming across the well risk taker quite as much as a GP might. And so I think my colleagues in primary care actually have this harder. So they, they see the very overweight but relatively well 50-year-old with so much, to, so much, much risk reduction potential ahead of them. By the time I'm seeing them, they're a patient with a lot of symptoms and a lot of comorbidity and it's probably easier to stop then. So it's probably a different time in their, in their transit, in their, you know, their journey of life. But at the end of the day, um, you bring to your clinical care your own biases, your own experience, and your knowledge of other people's experience and evidence. You know the literature, as we say, and all you can really and, and all you can really do is have a punt at giving at giving the best argument you can for why somebody should do something, and then back it up with some strategic, practical advice that might actually help them to do it. Yeah, what it sounds like it comes down to is, again, that long-term relationship, trying to build trust and not trying to brainwash someone overnight or instigate a sudden change in their behaviour. It's just not giving up on them, like you said, mm. working with them and knowing that you are a team with the patient, you really have the same goals as them. Mm.
Yeah, so that sounds really awesome. Now, because we are talking a little bit about smoking, one of the big advances in more recent times has been that plain packaging. So in Australia, that we have the brandless sort of look on cigarettes because that reduces the cool factor and hopefully that dampens down the enthusiasm to smoke. So I think that's a really crucial thing that's happened in health advocacy and public policy. Now, with with that aside, um, what what do you think are some of the biggest advances that have affected respiratory medicine in the last few years or even decades? So tobacco control in Australia is um, remarkable and amazing, and we should be really proud of being Australians in our tobacco control policy. I think we've got to be really careful. Like we have a role, but uh, doctors have a role in public advocacy. We are, we we do have a role in policy. We have a role to stick up for our patients. And I think we've done that with government, with um, tobacco control. The num, you know, the fact that we've got most most of the public places where we all congregate are tobacco free, are smoke free. You know, our pubs, our bars. Midnight Oil would not, and in excess, <laughs> would no longer play in a dingy, smoky uni bar because there aren't any now. Um, the fact that our workplaces are smoke free is important and, and sets a tone. The fact that, um, that there's plain packaging is really important. Um, and then there are other things that are actually above me, but my colleagues, my senior colleagues remain really important, uh, really vital for, for um, uh, the fight against big tobacco, you know, big tobacco and the taxes that they pay and the um, loopholes that they have. <laughs> so big tobacco and, and tobacco control um, has been a massive thing for us as respiratory physicians. What else has been big? Um, advances in cancer management and diagnostics and therapeutics and um, that means um, medicines for cancer, chemotherapy, um, new, um, new non-chemotherapy type medications for some cancers that for rare cancers, that's been a really important advance. And improvements in the way we can get tissue and diagnose cancer has been a big thing for us. Um, um, look at a bigger, bigger global, um, global, if I think global, things, things like respiratory infections, so vaccinations, um, uh, the widespread influenza and pneumococcus vaccinations has really made a big difference to to deaths, you know, from and and episodes of care from respiratory disease and tuberculosis remains a really important worldwide respiratory health issue. And I think the research that goes on around those kinds of diseases has flow-on effects. So what we learn from prostate cancer and breast cancer research might not go into lung cancer funding directly because, in fact, lung cancer, although it's the deadliest cancer for all Australians, is the least well-funded. But there are flow-on effects from other cancers research and I think the same is true in rarer things like pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary fibrosis research. Um, the infections I think are the next generation's major respiratory major oh I'm trying to think of a Game of Thrones analogy but it's going to be the next big battle so antibiotic stewardship and advocacy on the on the for the, on behalf of the organisms and their sensitivity is one it's a really important issue and I think respiratory physicians are really well placed to um, be on the front lines of that battle we, we're not you know we're not the generals but we certainly would be the captains of important teams um, when it comes to antibiotic stewardship um, 
and prescription of antibiotics at primary care level is one issue, but again, ad from an advocacy point of view, antibiotics in use um, outside of medicine in agriculture and in, um, uh, and in crop production are important and part of antibiotic stewardship. All of those kinds of things I think will be really important future issues and I think more likely than your idea of a body with no lungs <laughs> or with, with bubbles for lungs is the idea of infections that we can't treat that might kill people again like they did in the pre-penicillin era. So that'll be a scary day. I wonder if human evolution will be enough to overcome that. I suppose that organisms might evolve a lot faster no, than I we can. I think the organisms will get the better of us um, unless we're really, really careful. Already there are organisms circulating in the water supply in, in, sub, in the subcontinent that are completely resistant to all antibiotics. Some of our TB organisms are currently um, so resistant to all um, anti-TB drugs that they uh, are fatal and they're highly contagious. You know, it'll be infections that kill more people from lung disease in the next century, I think. Yeah, and that's why prevention is so important because mm. treatment can only go so far before it backfires. Now, to try and keep things a little bit positive, aside <laughs> from all humans being wiped out by bacteria, <laughs> one thing we haven't mentioned too much is um, the sleep side of respiratory medicine and there have been some great advances there like CPAP which is a proudly Australian invention and lots of ongoing research in sleep as well. So overall it's really exciting because there has been a lot of technology that's really boosted all medicine not just respiratory medicine whether it's you know public advocacy work or technology or advances in medication. Now one thing we did just mention though is infection is there actually an increased risk in certain specialties of getting infections from patients? You mean for doctors getting yeah. infections? Oh, I think um, yes, but I'm not sure that respiratory medicine is necessarily that for all for all doctors. But if you've got a, um, any other health any health complaints of your own, and if you've got any potential immune suppression, then I think you kind of come into um, a, a contact with a lot of infections in respiratory medicine and it, and it won't be just in public hospitals, it'll be in private rooms, it'll be the patient with cystic fibrosis who happens to have a resistant um, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection um, that, and if you happen to have CF um, or, you know, or if you've got chronic lung disease yourself as a doctor then you're at risk of catching that. If you've got any other chronic health problems and you're working on an, you know, in a respiratory service during um, the influent peak influenza season, your risk of catching influenza, even with vaccination, is really high, and um, um, that that can be a that can be an issue. Yeah, and I guess for the general population of doctors and medical practitioners, that's kind of just how life is. Medicine is something that has a bit of risk in it, but everything has risk. If you walk down the street, there sure. is risk. Look, I think there's lower risk to um, us as respiratory physicians for workplace or work-related um, health problems, acquisition of health work-related health problems than there is for our colleagues who jump out of helicopters and <laughs> rescue people, I think. Um, um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a really big risk. Yeah, and on that note, actually one of the biggest advances in medicine, you could say, is just hand hygiene and just yeah. being better aware of infection control. So we often overlook that sort of thing, but it's actually very powerful. Yeah, very powerful, yeah. Yeah, now I'd like to end by asking you, 
how do people react when you introduce yourself at parties? You say, I'm a lung doctor, a respiratory doctor. How do you explain it to the general public? So for a very, very long time, I, I didn't tell anybody that I was a med student because I, I used to go to parties. I had various boyfriends who were not med students. And um, I, I used to pretend I was a florist. <laughs> but actually, as I've got older and I ended up marrying another doctor, actually most of the parties I go to are with other doctors and I haven't had to hide it for a while. Um, uh, Just a quick note pick, there. Wouldn't yeah. it be easier to pass yourself off as a florist at a party of doctors? Because I assume they would be less inclined to know about flowers. Maybe that's true. Yeah. You, you <laughs> might meet another florist true. at an actual other party. <laughs> that's true. Good point. Um, the answer is, um, I, I, if I'm with non-doctors, I tell them I'm a doctor and I tell them I work in a hospital. And uh, if they ask more questions, I tell them that I'm a specialist. And then if they're really interested, we might get into lungs. Yeah. Are there any general um, misconceptions that people have or any stereotypes that you find you have to correct about medicine or respiratory medicine? Um, no, not really. I look at lots, um, some, some, old, some older patients, um, when I come to see them first on a ward round and, and I say, uh, I'm Dr Morgan, and they say, oh, and they've got Professor Morgan written up on the, on the thing above the bed head, and they, and some people will say, oh, I thought you'd be a bloke, you know, <laughs> not that many. I've got to say, I think, uh, particularly, you know, look, this is this is March two thousand and eighteen. It's relevant because um, today there was a study announced um, that uh, uh, two out of three women under thirty felt that they had been discriminated against in their workplace because of being women. And um, something like 30% of women in a workplace reported this year that they had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. And I have to say that actually I have, I have not felt that being a woman in, in my profession has limited me because of being a woman. But of course there's tricky things and juggling families and marriages and partnerships and work is hard whatever you're doing but I have never felt that I didn't get a job because I was a girl and I've never felt that I didn't get through an exam or a hurdle because I was a girl nor did I feel like I got through because I was a girl and I have lots of sisters in this in this workplace you know the, the sisterhood is strong in medicine and in physicians uh, and there are lots of inspiring women ahead of me and behind me and around me in respiratory medicine so and lots of great blokes as well so I actually have to say that I think that's why it's relevant to me to say the date and I think um, that there are still some corners of health where it's unnecessarily hard for girls to make it and for where it doesn't feel like it's an, an even playing field and I guess I've actively avoided those corners of the park and I'm in a, I'm in a nice flat part of the park. <laughs> Good, yeah. So it sounds like uh, progression is a lot more based on a meritocracy sort of system so things like what you bring to medicine, it sounds a lot like communication skills, having a passion to help people and that sort of thing. So. Finally, let's let's actually end there on the note of communication. I know it's quite important for all areas of medicine. How important would you rate it in 
your line of work? Oh, look, it's right up there. It's probably the most important, the most important part of my job. And I'm not perfect at it, but I've um, learned along the way a lot of great skills from a lot of other great people, um, and and I learn a lot about communicating well from my patients. Sometimes when it doesn't go well, <laughs> but it's got to be about the most important part of any any clinical interaction. Excellent, and that was totally a trick so that I could segue into saying communication is important, so therefore podcasts are excellent. And <laughs> thank you all for listening to this medical podcast. Uh, an exercise in communication between two people in the field. So thank you very much, Dr. Lucy, for all your wisdom and your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Lily. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Bye.